Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. We got episode 154 on the docket for you today. And the man who paces the Cup Series field every single week, literally, is on with us. Kip Childress, no relation, party people. Lots to unpack with him. He has had an extensive, really impressive career that spans the local, regional, national level of motorsports and NASCAR. He's such a great guy, great storyteller, has a lot of really cool, fun tales from back in the day with big Bill France, Bill France Jr., his dad and his grandfather, who also were NASCAR officials. And now he's able to tell us about his time as the pace car driver and the assistant director in the Cup Series. A really, really awesome conversation with Kip. I'm excited for you guys to hear it. Before we get to that conversation with everybody's favorite pace car driver, Kip Childress, we got to pay homage to that number 54, and we're going to do it by going back for the second week in a row to Hollywood. Papa Siegel has more. Thank you, Duke, and welcome everyone to episode 154. Last week, we took to the silver screen to highlight Herbie the Love Bug and his iconic 53 car. Car 54 has a Hollywood connection also. Long before Davy's time, and even before mine, there was a black and white TV series in the early 60s titled Car 54, Where Are You? You ever heard of that expression, Duve? That's where it comes from. 465 starts for the 54 car and three wins. 178 of those starts, the most of any driver, and two of the wins came from North Wilkesboro campaigner Jimmy Pardue. Pardue ran the car during the time of the TV show and even gave a nod to it on his driver's door. On the door of the car above the number, he added a small car, and below it, here I am. That's pretty funny. Pardue's career came to a premature end in 1964 during a test at Charlotte. Ironically enough, one of the tires he was testing blew out, sending the 33-year-old Pardue and his car through the guardrail in turns three and four and out of the track. He didn't survive. Pardue still finished fifth in the points that year, despite running almost a dozen fewer races than King Richard, who won the title. That's all for this week. Back to you, Duve. Thank you, Dad. I have heard that saying maybe a couple times, maybe a handful or a few, but it's not necessarily in my everyday lexicon. But now that I have a bit of a history lesson, maybe it will be. Who knows? Let's start off this episode, as we always do, with a good old-fashioned... And throw it straight over to our chat with... Kip Childress. I call him a pace car driver extraordinaire, but that only begins to scratch the surface. We started off the conversation talking about how he has one of, if not the coolest jobs in NASCAR. I, I really do feel that way. 
how he got started in the sport. It was familial ties going back not one but two generations and how he has worked his way up. I was going to say slowly but steady, but it's honestly kind of been pretty quick when you look at the totality of how he has climbed and, and the amount of time he's done that in. He is a great dude. And if you haven't talked to him before, if you haven't seen him, next time you're watching the NASCAR race on Sunday, check out the pace car, look a little bit closer, and you will see Kip Childress at the controls. Awesome chat with Kip. Gave me an hour of his time as he's heading into a big race weekend, the 4th of July at Road America. So I hope you enjoyed this chat as much as I did. Without further ado, here is the chat with pace car driver extraordinaire, Kip Childress. Real pleasure to welcome on to the show this week. Long time coming, people. You may not see him every week, but you know what he's doing. And in this chat, you're going to get to learn a lot more about the man who drives the pace car every single week. It is the man, the myth, the legend, Kip Childress. How the heck are you, my friend? I hope that you have uh, cooled off a little bit after this hot weekend at Nashville. Yeah, cooled off, gained a little bit of uh, sleep over the past couple Good. of days to recoup from that. But yeah, what a weekend we had in Nashville. Yeah. Would you rather be hot or cold at the racetrack? It's been a bit of a debate this week. Yeah, you know... Um, uh, so I'm right in the middle. I'd rather be 70 all the time. Right. But yeah. I, I think, you know, you can always add more clothes. It's really tough to take them off. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, especially when you, when you look up a down pit road and you see our officials, all the crew members, you know, our, our two officials in the flag stand that can't escape it. So, oh, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah. I think that we'd all rather be on the cool side than the hot side. For I'm sure. with you. I think you can always put layers off. You can't always take them off, but at the same time, you're just, sitting pretty and uh you know sunny and 75 inside your pace car so I, I don't think you have a real complaint here kip yeah so i i try not to bring that up too often i am <laughs> spoiled i'll be the first to admit that yeah. um I, I i will tell you this though i have been in in pace vehicles over the over the course of time where they either the air conditioner has quit Oof. or we're having to do other things that don't allow us to turn maybe the heat or the ac on so Oof. um you know it's um in in that case, we had an air conditioner that did quit one time. We were in Topeka, Kansas, many many years ago for a truck race, and and uh, had the AC quit. And and you know you hear drivers talk all the time about when their air conditioners quit in the car, how it it blows hot air on you. Well, that's that's what we had going on there. And, Brutal. And in Topeka, I think it was uh, probably 112 in the shade. So, <laughs> yeah, I. But yeah, for sure, um, spoiled nonetheless to to be in the AC or the, or the heat. Uh, yeah. as we had in Martinsville earlier in the year. No pun intended, but uh, we're talking about being cool. I feel like you have one of the coolest jobs in not just NASCAR, but motorsports. Being the pace car driver is something that it's so elementary for hardcore NASCAR fans that watch every single week, pace car ducking in, all right, pace car's picking them up. But you are the man that actually drives the pace car. And I know that it's more than just driving and we'll get to that, but to me, it's a really, really, really cool job. And I know it's kind of cliche to say, but do you feel that way too? Do you feel like you have a really cool job in the sport? You know, for sure. Um, I, I feel like I have one of the best seats in the house. Um, sometimes when we're tucked away in our parking spot at the end of pit road or, or wherever we may be, uh, sometimes that seat is a little bit challenging. <laughs> but when you are in front of the field and you're coming to the green, whether it's an initial green flag at Daytona or, uh, you know, coming to the restart after uh, a rain delay at Nashville. Um, when you hear the crowd, when you, when you see the, uh, the people on the fence there and they're excited to see the cars come to life and, 
and you know that you're the only thing standing in the way of those guys going to racing, it's, it's a pretty remarkable feeling. So before we go any further, I have to ask the obvious question that everybody probably asks you, and you're so tired of answering. And even though I know the answer, are you related to Richard Childress? Yeah, not close enough. That's <laughs> been my standard answer over the uh, the course of about 50 years. But no, you know, and ironically, Richard and I live about 15 minutes from one another. Okay. Um, growing up in the same in the same town, uh, lived uh, now live in the same county. Uh, I'm I'm literally 10 minutes from RCR. Very cool. Um, and it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's really funny when you, when I go to visit the shop, some of the new employees that are there, if they, you know, when I sign in at the guest book at the, uh, at the lobby, they'll, they'll look down and see Childress and they'll wonder, I wonder yeah, if, maybe. you know, and, and, it, and it's paid some dividends too. I've, I've managed to maybe get an upgrade on a flight because of that, or, oh, uh, yeah. We were we were at a uh, at a banquet one year, and I had a, a fruit basket delivered to my room. It should have gone to Richard and Judy. <laughs> and when I called Richard up and, and said, "Hey, we've got this here for you," the first thing he asked was, "Hey, do you have your wife with you?" When I told him that I did, and he told us to enjoy it. So, um, cool. you know, even even when there's a mix up, uh, you know, it's not bad to have that last name. Yeah. What's the fun in having the same last name as somebody else famous in your industry if you don't have a little bit of fun with it? And it's funny that, you know, we are in the same industry, uh, albeit on different sides of the fence, mm -hmm. so to speak, and, and and do live as close as we do to one another. There has to be something there or, uh, you know, somewhere along the lines of the family tree where the branches come together, but haven't been able to find it yet. Yeah. Maybe we'll get there one day. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, so let's go back all the way to the beginning. I know that you are a third generation NASCAR official, which is an awesome story in and of itself. So conventional wisdom would suggest that you kind of got your passion for motorsports and NASCAR from your father and his father, and it traces back three generations of Childresses. Is that the case? And did your passion for racing kind of just stem from your familial ties with it? Yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't have the fortune to, to know my grandfather. He passed away just before I was born. And, and, but I have heard plenty of stories about him. He was a uh, chief steward at Bowman Gray stadium, um, back in the sixties. Um, he, uh, he was part of a group, a small group of, of folks who, um, helped promote races even back in that day too. Uh, Alvin Hawkins, who was the, uh, who was the track operator, excuse me, the track operator at Bowman Gray. And, and, uh, and my, my grandfather worked together along with Enix Staley, who coincidentally is my great uncle. Um, they, they helped really get some of the races up and going here in the Carolinas with the direction under the direction of Bill Ferentz senior. So, um, you know, that kind of, yeah, got the ball rolling. And then, you know, I'm not sure how my dad kind of, uh, got started in the sport, uh, unless it's just, uh, you know, a, a matter of him following along, uh, in the footsteps of his dad and, yeah. and doing something that is familiar to our family. Um, but I know as a kid growing up in the seventies and eighties and, and following my dad, my family to the, to the track. So, you know, every, each and every summer, every race season, um, I fell in love with it. It was, uh, you know, I got to rub elbows and, 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 and be around my heroes, um, weekend and week out. It was a, um, it was just a, it was a great time to be a kid in our sport. Um, you know, there, there are times when I know that being at a, a short track somewhere, um, you know, you, you meet up with other kids and you throw a baseball or you throw a football or you, there's no telling how many other second, third generation, uh, racers that I have probably tossed a baseball with in an infield yeah. somewhere. and just didn't know it at the time. So, um, but yeah, you know, and I think the coolest part about that too, is I got to grow up around these guys that, 
were heroes. They were of mine there and, and to so many race fans across the country. And, but, but I didn't really realize it at the time because there were just, there were just the guys at the track and, and, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, I, I knew growing up and, and I've had people come back that I went to school with elementary, junior high, and, and into high school that told me that they knew this would be the path that I would take. Um, and so, uh, to be able to do this now and to say that I'm a third generation, uh, NASCAR official, it's, uh, it, it's really kind of cool when you stop and think about it. Definitely. So Definitely. I, I tell my kids this all the time. Um, I am a poster child for someone who is doing what they want to do. You know, you, you hear it growing up and, and we, we tell our kids, you know, you can do whatever you want to, if you put your mind to it. And I, and I really felt, feel like that I am an example of that. I knew as a kid, this was what I wanted to do. Didn't know maybe exactly uh, within our sport, what I was going to do, but I knew this is where I wanted to be. And I feel very fortunate that I'm here. It's very well said. And it's a great point. And I think, you know, in my research, I saw you were hanging around guys like Sam Ard and, Herb Thomas and all these legends of the sport and kind of in a way now that it's kind of come full circle and you're working with Kyle Busch, Kevin Harvick, Brad Keselowski and still legends that are in ownership roles and team management roles in the sport. So it's kind of come full circle in the sense of in your childhood, you're around these legends and you know you want to be associated in the sport somehow. And now as yeah, a grown adult with your own family, you're still associated with a lot of those legends, but now some current and even future legends of the sport. That's kind of cool to look on. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Um, and, and, you know, I went back and I pulled up a, a list on, on my computer the other day of, you know, just since I have been back with, uh, with NASCAR within the last, you know, uh, 15 years or so, you know, just the champions that I've been able to, to work around and, and, and the names, you know, back when I was with the Canaan series and, uh, even right on up to today, it's, it's fun to see those, those names have, have made progressions and, and have grown up in the sport, you know, very yeah. similarly to what, how I have. Yeah. And I think your dad was the baby grand series director, which was the goodies dash series. Your grandfather was also an official. So in one sense, you know, you probably had your career already mapped out for you, you know, your grandpa did it, your dad did it. Why not you? Right. But at the same time, there's a lot of people that have experience in the sport and they say, okay, I know I want to be associated with it. I just don't really know what, how, or when. But for you, was it always going to be on this side of things? No experience driving, nothing tinkering on the cars. It was always going to be on the officiating side? Well, you know, I, I used to pester my my parents all the time to uh, to get a go-kart. I wanted to go racing. I wanted to go go-kart racing. And as a kid, um, you know, that was something that my dad really didn't want to go down that path. He, he used to tell me this. Um, he said, look, there are a lot of people that go to the racetrack. And this was, you know, back in the seventies. The so, um, times were a lot different then, but, but still very similar to the way they are today. Mm -hmm. But he would tell me that there are a lot of folks who go to the racetrack. And at the end of the day, if you're an official, you're going to leave with more money than you came with. Uh, <laughs> there are very few racers that can actually He's a say smart that. Man. And, and so, you know, and, and granted, you know, that the, 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 it's a little different. It's a lot different. You know, when you, when you look at, you know, how, if you are, if you are a successful driver or crew member or owner, you know, you have the opportunity to, to have a very, uh, have a very nice life. And, and I, I will say that, you know, I've, I have been able to see our company even grow to the point where, um, you know, when I first started, uh, as an official back in the nineties, it was a situation where we, you know, we worked as independent contractors. And, uh, so, 
you know, today now to be a, a full-time employee of our company. And, uh, like, I, and I'll go back to saying this a lot, I tell my kids, I get to be around race cars and racers every day that I want to be anytime that I want to be. And every other, every other Friday I get, I get paid for it. So it's a, uh, it's a pinch me moment, uh, for sure. Speaking of pinch me moments, I need some clarity on this story that I read. It has to do with Bill France or Bill France Jr. or both and somebody passing you peppermints back in the day. <laughs> I feel like this story has to have an awesome payoff. Yeah, so we were at a we were at a, an event at North Wilkesboro. Um and and like I said, you know, Enix Daly who was an owner at North Wilkesboro Speedway, he was my great uncle. So a little background on that. So Enix while he owned the track or, or at that time owned half the track, his sisters would operate the ticket office. And one of his sisters was my grandmother. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I would tag along anytime something would go on at North Wilkesboro, I would be there helping in any way that I could. And, and typically by the time the race would start, my duties would be finished. And so I found myself up in race control for a race and, and, and typically even, even back in the seventies and eighties race control set up very similar, similarly to the way that it is now, where the front row are, are typically the guys that are engaged in running the race. You have your race director, you have your, the, the, the person that's running the fire and safety, uh, equipment, even, even back in that time, you had four or five people running the race, uh, your scoring staff, but then bill jr. And some of the others would sit on the back row and kind of oversee, you know, everything that was going on. Well, Bill kept sliding. Uh, he had a, a Ziploc bag full of peppermints or hard candy. And, and every time I would turn around, he'd slide another piece down the aisle to me or down the road to me. So cool. And I was probably so jacked up on sugar by the time we got finished with that race, my dad could have killed him by the time we <laughs> had that 45 minute ride home back to Winston. -Salem. Yeah. Wow. What a story. You probably have, you probably like peppermints now, right? Um, uh, yeah. So we were visiting a, um, just the other day, uh, when, when we had, uh, our off week, uh, after Sonoma, we, we were visiting a few schools. Um, my youngest daughter is going to be a rising senior in high school this year. And so we've been on the college tour trying to, to pick out a school for her. Well, as we were going uh, through one of the campuses, every seemed like every administration uh, type office that we would walk yep. to had a dish on the countertop and it had peppermints in it. It's giving so, you flashbacks yeah. to Wilkesboro. By the end of that day, I had my pocket full of empty wrappers because <laughs> I had consumed them all. Yep. I love it. That's such a great story. That's really cool. Okay, so I think you got your start officiating officially, no pun intended there either, at Caraway Speedway, which is one of the most iconic venues in short track racing in the Carolinas, obviously. What specifically were you doing and did you do when you got mm -hmm. your start as an official? Because as we know, there's a lot of different roles that NASCAR officials can play whether it be on a super speedway, a mile and a half, or a short track running the weekly series. So specifically, when you got your start at Caraway, what were you doing? I was thrown to the wolves, um, <laughs> literally, quite literally. So my first venture working at Caraway Speedway was as a backup announcer. Um, and so Jim Purdy, who had been the announcer there, the PA guy there forever, it seemed, he was the lead guy. But, you know, Jim was getting up there in age a little bit. And so they wanted someone to come in and and help him, you know, run up and down the steps, handle some of the on-track uh, interviews and whatnot. Right. And and so typically, you know, Jim was our lead guy, and I would be like a turn announcer, um, both of us side by side, of course, up in in the press box. But um, we were at a race, and the uh, the pace car driver uh, had a malfunction in the pace car, and the throttle stuck coming to green. 
Oh, this was a front wheel drive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the front wheel drive, uh, Dodge charger. And I don't remember the year, but it was uh, early nineties. Okay. Um, and when he came off the banking off of turn four, when he hit the, the, the hinge point, uh, as he came on the pit road, the front tire spun, it took a dead left and drove him straight into the guardrail. He bounced off the guardrail and drove back into it one more time until the car finally gave up. Um, but destroyed a car. Uh, he was hurt off the second impact because of the airbag had already deflated. And so my dad turned around to me and the press box at the time was very small at Caraway. He turned around to me and pointed a finger and said, find something to drive. You're the new pace car driver. <laughs> so I literally found a pickup truck. Um, uh, that was kind of like the, the backup to the backup cleanup truck that we were using. Uh, -huh. uh and I became the, uh, the pace car driver that night and, and drove, um, you know, for Caraway for up until, I guess, uh, the end of the 95 season. Wow. And, uh, as I was working my way to becoming a, a truck series official. So you go in with, a with the assumption, all right, it's just going to be a backup announcer, typical short track Saturday night, just going to call some racing, no big deal. And not only uh, do you end up becoming an announcer, but you also are a de facto pace car driver with a backup pace car. That's, that sounds like getting thrown <laughs> to the wolves. I think you're right. For sure. And I'm going to tell you that it, it was quite intimidating. You know, the drivers back then, um, you know, some of the drivers, uh, Mike Skinner comes to mind. Um, it was right on the heels of Bobby Labonte winning a championship there. Um, Dennis Setzer was one of our, our regular drivers. Mm -hmm. So we had, you know, it was a who's who of late model stock car drivers, plus all the other divisions that we had. Um, there were, there were quite some entertaining nights uh, on Saturdays at Caraway Speedway. Yeah. I can only imagine. Do you get back out there a lot nowadays or is it just kind of hard with your schedule? It's hard with the schedule, but you know, actually, you know, as, as we're recording this on, on a Wednesday, they're having a, uh, a race this evening. So uh, we wrap this up. I'm going to head down to, to Sophia to see the, see the guys. Well, it's been great chatting with, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I lived closer so I could, uh, I could go with you. I've never been to Caraway. I haven't been to a lot of local short tracks in the Carolina specifically, but Caraway is definitely on my list. And another one, which hopefully in the near future, I'll be able to go to is North Wilkesboro. We kind of talked about that a little bit earlier. I think you right. also did some work there back in the day. And that's where you met Winston Kelly and his wife. So tell me about your stories back in the day before North Wilkesboro was or is what it's going to be now. Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned going up there as a kid and doing any odd job that, that I would be allowed to do. I was a, a social media contact director when I was about 10, I think. And what that entailed was we would stand inside the, the ticket gate with a box of uh, brochures for the upcoming race. And as the, uh, the the fans would come in and have their ticket stub, we would hand them a brochure so they'd be sure to buy their tickets. So it was like social we media before social media. Oh, we were it's cutting edge, man. We were <laughs> we were the first ones to do that. I love it. Um, so graduated from there to being able to hang banners around the racetrack. Graduated from there to being able to uh, stub tickets to work at Ticketgate or a uh, to work um, on the backstretch there at North Wilkesboro. Those seats were unreserved. So, you know, you'd show up there early on race day morning and, and sell tickets. Um, so able to do a lot of that. And, and along the way, I uh, had the opportunity to, uh, to, to meet Winston. I, again, found myself up in race control. Um, the PA booth was just down, down the hall from there. And uh, so met uh, Winston and, and met his dad, Earl Kelly. Um, and Winston 
I think at that time it, it was before really MRN was getting off the ground. Uh, the Universal Racing Network was uh, was one of the networks that was was really the driving force uh, for a lot okay. of the radio broadcast. Uh, Barney Hall was a part a part of that, and and, and Winston was as well. But you know, as uh, Winston and Earl would kind of take turns either describing the action that was going on on the track or uh one of the things that they had me do was they'd have me uh, a copy of ads and i would read the ads that's all i got to do read the ads you're just but a voiceover okay, guy that's all right and and because it, it allowed me to, to get my foot in the door and you know i there there are things that i do and i know probably don't sound like it right now but there are things that i do uh that enables me to, to get behind a microphone uh, quite often so i attribute a lot of that to the fact that winston and earl pulled me inside of that pa booth one day and said hey come in here and help us with this yeah that's interesting okay so i know you mentioned the the caraway stuff happened and then you eventually kind of went truck racing and started following that series around when did nascar's national series because this whole time right i mean caraway is a nascar weekly track you're within the the, the sport and the industry you're fully entrenched but when did the national series come calling for you and what was the timeline associated with you making the jump there all right so the the timeline is really kind of it's broken up all over the place so worked at caraway until i did go truck racing i i i badgered and pestered wayne alton for years and years to to well if not for years months and months because the truck series had just gotten off the ground in 95 um and i was helping off and on with the dash series uh, Kim Shaver uh, was the director of the Dash Series at that time, so I would go to Daytona. I would go to wherever they needed an extra set of hands or, or or a body to help with the inspection process, and and I was really really green, just trying to to get my foot in the door um, to be able to go with a touring series. So I had the opportunity to go work. Uh, oddly enough, the '96, I'm sorry, the '95 Truck Series race at North Wilkesboro and uh the truck series race at martinsville uh martinsville was a rain out if i remember right so we ended up coming back on a monday and because i lived so close i was able to stay over and help out on the monday mm -hmm. north wilkesboro was just awesome because it was at one of my home tracks and so to be able to help out there was you know part of the dream that was coming true and so um went full-time as a contractor uh with the truck series in 96 and uh and and worked with that series um met my wife in 95 so got married and then as we got to the 99 season i'd already had my first daughter and actually hadn't missed quite a bit of time with her so at the end of 99 i, I stepped away uh, from being an official and tried my best to stay in the sport by working with companies like racing radios uh, racing electronics um and, and i went to work at uh, trailers of the east coast in moxville uh, they, they were a huge vendor for racing trailers throughout the, uh, the, the triad of the Piedmont of North Carolina. And so I, I tried to stay involved with racing even so much as to go and work as a race director at Orange County Speedway in Rougemont. So, um, after, I guess a number of years went by, I, I found out that as much as I really wanted to work in the real world, um, it wasn't working. And so I, just by i don't know that the timing the timing couldn't have been better um for me as i was looking to get back in uh, with nascar i made a phone call found out they were looking for a director for their uh, east series um and so uh, put my name in the hat there and at the end of 08 was hired uh, to go back to work for the company this time as the director of the east series 
and have been back with the company ever since. Seems like it just always finds a way of pulling you back in, doesn't it? Doesn't matter where, well, when, who, what, how. It just always finds a way. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate of things happen for a reason, mm -hmm. right? And so um, all of those other ventures that I had leading up to the, the part of me being back with the company as the East Series director, I feel like uh, I learned something there to help apply to the new job. Sure. And so, uh, you know, had I stayed with the company at the end of 99, all the way up through 08, you know, there's no telling what I would be doing now, or even if I would still be involved in racing, but the steps that it took to get me to where I am right now, I feel like they were, uh, they were kind of predestined and I've just been following them. Yeah. So I find it interesting, you know, you have this career, you have a family that takes precedence for obvious reasons. You step back and then you realize, all right, I I'm missing something. I want to get back in it. The, what was then I think camping world East series, K and N camping Correct. world, Arca East, you know, it's all mumbo jumbo here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it felt like, at least on the surface, that was kind of a good re-entry point in the sense of it gets you back to the racetrack, it gets you doing what you want to do, but it's not the grind of a 36 race weekend schedule because probably at that point it was what, in the, the low to mid-teens in terms of races per year? So you were still traveling, you were still on the road, but you weren't necessarily gone every single weekend and it wasn't re regimented like that. Well, and that's right. So my first full season was 2009 and we had 11 races on the schedule. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the one thing we would do as the touring department and what that was made up of is the East and West series, the modified tour and this at the time, the Southern modified tour as well as as well as the the uh, the series up in Canada, which is now the Penty series mm -hmm. and and the series that's down in Mexico. So we would uh, we would help each other. Um, our staffs were very small, so we would, uh, even though we weren't traveling every week and um, we still, we still did visit some other, uh, events to help out our, 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 our coworkers, our, our other directors that were involved in those series. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and because our staffs were smaller, you know, we were doing the job of what so many do at the national level to prepare for an event, uh, you know, not only for the ones in that particular calendar year, but working on races that are coming up in, in the future years. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause I always used to joke with, um, Chris Wright, who I believe still is, is helping direct the, uh, the East and West series right. for Arca. I always joke with him. I was like, yeah, you're just, you know, the modern Kip Childress. And he always gets a chuckle out of that. But to, to your point too, you know, there, there only may be a certain amount of races for those series, but he is traveling every single week, going to visit race shops, seeing how he can work with the teams and obviously going up north to Canada, down to Mexico. I think he's been to Europe a handful of times for the Wheel and Euro series too. So back then it obviously was different than what it is now, but those same characteristics, even though you're now entrenched in the Cup series, it feels like those same characteristics on the local touring level haven't really differed that much from what they once were. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I had the great fortune to work with Chris. Um, he came on, I believe it was 2013, because at that time we were going through some transition and I made the switch from the East Series midseason uh, to go work with the West uh, in that season, just as Chris came on board. And, and we worked together, what, for three and a half years mm -hmm. before I had the opportunity to go and work with the Xfinity Series. So, you know, there you won't find a harder worker than, than Chris Wright for sure. Right. And he epitomizes, you know, what the, the touring level uh, series director is, is about. Uh, he, he goes to great lengths to make sure that his events are, are set up and ready, but you know, that's what we were all doing uh, at that level. And, uh, 
you know, they, they've got a real gym and have a Chris there. We know you're listening. So hello, Chris. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned the Xfinity series was another stop that you made. So at this point you've been at the local level, you've been at the truck series level, you've been at the regional touring series level. And now it would obviously suggest the logical progression is to go to the Xfinity series level, which I guess then was either Bush or nationwide. So why make the jump then? And what was the specific position that you had there? Yep. So that came along in 2016. So we were Xfinity at the time. Okay. Um, and so um, they were going through a bit of a transition too. And and they were going to start with with some, some personnel changes. Wayne Alton, who was the director of the Xfinity series, was at that time as well. Uh, you know, Wayne and I, we've, we've worked together back in the 90s uh, with the truck series. And I've known the Alton family what seems to be my entire life. Um, you know, we talked about my, my dad working, Wayne and Buster, and their dad, Hoot, used to work with dad, with my dad. So, um, cool. you know, I had, had the opportunity and the, and the comfort level already there to, uh, you know, to, to work closely with Wayne. And at that point in time, they were looking to enhance what was their garage supervisor and make that uh, position what they called and what we are now assistant series directors. So what that boils down to is the assistant series director is in charge of basically anything that moves within the confines of the garage area. So if it parks, if it's a tractor trailer, if it's the race car rolling through inspection, if it's uh, determining where the, the tires go when they come off of Goodyear's trucks, um, that kind of falls into uh, our wheelhouse. And so it, it gave us an opportunity to work closely, closely with the managing directors to, to kind of take a little bit off their plate so they could focus on the, the technical aspect or the competition aspect of, of our garage. And so, um, you know, when Wayne came to me and asked me if I'd be interested in that position, well, I, I jumped at the chance because it was an opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to go back to work with Wayne, mm -hmm. uh, but to learn this new role too, because, you know, at, you know, at the time in, in 2016, here I am, I'm 45 at that point in time, you know, I still feel like I have a, a long future ahead of me in the sport. And this gives me another opportunity to learn another level of it. Clearly you learned enough and you learned it well, because you now hold that same position for the cup series as assistant cup series director. I'm glad you spelled that out because I figure that you were kind of just the right hand man to all the decision makers that are going on in the tower during the race. And you just kind of have a vantage point on the track. And during the week you're helping with logistics, but it sounds like you're doing that. And then some, I could kind of call you logistics operator extraordinaire because hauler parking is no easy feat, making sure all the cars are able to snake through inspection and everybody can walk and do their jobs efficiently. That is not easy to do at all. So doing that on the cup series level, I can only imagine there's, there's more ounces of intensity that come to certain roles as you move up the ladder in a certain way in NASCAR. And I feel like the cup series probably is no different. Yeah. And, but you know what, the, the one thing that I, I point my finger to a, a lot is the fact that, um, in each of the national series garages, whether it's trucks or Xfinity or, or the cup series, these teams understand what, what we do. And when I say we, uh, myself, Jason Brownlow, who is our assistant series director in the Xfinity, and Jesse Dolivut in the Camping World Truck Series, you know, the three of us work together probably closer than any others in, in our uh, groups, making sure that the the map that I put together works well with the map that Jason puts together, right. works well with the map that Jesse puts together. So, you know, that along with the cooperation of our teams, you know, all of our crew chiefs, our hauler drivers, um, you know, they are – 
they they carry through with the plans that we put in place and it makes the entire sport look good when when everything comes together um but like it could be a hard job yeah um it's it's really not that difficult because of all the good people in place when did the assistant cup series director title get added to your plate and and on your resume because presumably you were driving the pace car and then that kind of got added or maybe i have the timeline wrong well so um was with Xfinity um, and the, the pace car driving in, in Xfinity didn't really come into play until probably late 20, 2018, I okay. believe. And so we, we were still, you know, deciding what, what the assistant director needed to be doing and, and that. So Jesse Dollavute was already doing that in the truck series as the assistant director. Um, and in the cup series, it was being shared by uh, uh, Brett Bodine and, and Buster Alton. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we went into the 2019 season, um, with a new director, with, uh, some other new things that was being put into place, um, you know, one of those was that Brett was really going to be focused on, um, our drivers that worked their way up the ladder. And, and he was already doing that, but this was going to give him the time to, to really focus on that from, from the office in Concord. Um, and, and the other part of that too, is it, it gave him a chance to, uh, to be at home with his kids as they were racing, you know, over at Millbridge or, or, you know, wherever they sure. were running their, their, their cart. So, um, as we made the the transition into the cup series in 2019, uh, many of the same duties that I had in Xfinity, I carried over into uh, the cup series, um, and, and immediately began driving the pace car at that time and have been ever since. Um, you know, the, the one thing that was really instrumental in helping all that too is, you know, Buster Alton was riding right seat with, with Brett for so many years. Um, so Buster continued to ride right seat with me. Uh, now Buster is in charge of our entire transportation department. And I don't think people really understand what that entails. You know, Buster's in charge of the, the fleet of tractor trailers that go up and down the road for the cup series, for the Xfinity series, the truck series, all, all the, all the tractor trailers for ARCA, any of the touring series, MRN, um, racing electronics. Now, it, when when International Speedway Corporation and NASCAR merged a few years ago, that really um, it probably doubled or tripled the amount of responsibility yeah. for the rolling fleet that that Buster's in charge of. So it it gave him an opportunity by me stepping into that pace car role and handling logistics at the track for him to be able to stay at our transportation headquarters in Conover, North Carolina to oversee all of our rolling fleet. And, um, and I think we have all benefited from that change. Yeah. I can only imagine all the work that goes in behind the scenes for a guy like him that, that no real fan really pays attention to, but they see the work and they see kind of the tangible work that he's doing, um, every single week when they go to the racetrack. So I'm curious because at this point, right, you've worked locally, regionally truck Xfinity and now cup you've made the logical progression and you've kind of made it to what a lot of people would say the pinnacle of motorsports here in North America and for stock car racing. Did you feel that you had kind of reached the pinnacle or do you feel like you're at the top right now, given that you're working in the cup series or is it a different kind of vibe for you right now? Basically saying, look, I'm doing a job that needs to be done and yes, I'm enjoying it. Yes. This is viewed as the top level of motorsport, but at its core, you're kind of doing the same thing that you had been doing at every step along the way. Now, so I, I think each each opportunity that I've had since being back with the company in 2008 has 
allowed me to learn uh, things that help with what I'm doing today. Um, I said this in 2008, 2009, my first season with the, uh, at the time, the Camp World East series, that if that is my final job within our company, I'll be happy. I'll be ecstatic because I'm able to work around race cars, able to work around race car drivers. Right. You know, at the time, Ryan Truex was our champion. We had, you know, um, these young guys coming up and we were able to see them move on into the upper levels of our sport. So I, I loved what I was doing then, but I am always eager to, to do more. I'm always eager to, to learn um, or, or to have the opportunity to, to take what, whatever that next step might be. And I think the, the beauty of what we're, what we have been doing over the last few years is, you know, there are, there are folks like Steve Phelps and Steve O'Donnell and, and they are, I, they don't tell us this, but I know that they have plans for our sport five, 10, 15 years down the road. And, and what has been, uh, what's been very, very humbling is throughout my career with our sport is that I've been asked to do these other jobs. Um, and I can't wait for the next one to be asked, but at the same time as if this is where I land, then I'm extremely happy with that as well. Very well said. All right, let's get into some nitty gritty stuff about driving the pace car. Cause I know fans love to hear this side of things. Uh, are you familiar <laughs> with Rick Houston? Yes, I am. Okay. So do you know that yeah. Rick Houston drove a pace car one time and he'll never let it go? Yes. I, I, I don't, I was not around for that, um, for the time that that happened, yeah. but I'm very, I'm very well familiar. Okay. With it. I was not either, but I listened to the scene vault podcast <laughs> and he brings it up all the time. And I always think of you and I think you're, he refers to you by name sometimes. So Rick, relax. Kip's doing a great job, but if, if he needs relief, I'm sure he'll call you. Okay. Yeah. Um, what, and I realize this is a very broad question, so take it however you want, but besides literally driving the car, what goes into being the pace car driver that the fan does not see? You know, for, for me, I think it's the responsibility of having the welfare of, you know, 40 race car drivers behind me in my hands. Um, there is nothing that is, uh, we, we have an opportunity to go out on the racetrack. Okay. So I'll get way in too deep. If I go down, please that do path it first. though. I'm here for it. We'll get there. <laughs> so start of the race. Um, you know, we, we have a great track services team. So start of the race, you know, there's very little that we have to be mindful of in terms of track condition, surface condition, as we get started. Um, we're always mindful of the weather. Uh, we're watching obviously what falls on the windshield. Um, and, we're working with uh, track services to keep up with the condition of the, of the track. So um, in the pace laps of the race, it is, you know, generally we're just, it's, it's double checking things. It's making sure that as you go by the, the gate at the flag stand, yeah, it's closed. Um, it, it, believe it or not, if, as you go and you make sure that, you know, steps have been pulled up or maybe a water bottle got left somewhere that it shouldn't have. So we're, we're, we're looking for those oddities that, that, um, you know, might, pose a, a problem as, you know, as we start the race during the course of the race, a lot of it is just, um, you know, kind of keeping up with, um, what's going on on the racetrack, keeping up with, you know, where the leader is. And a lot of times that's tough. You know, as we go to road America this week, you know, around a, a four plus mile road course, trying to keep up with where the leader is when we're parked in one specific spot. Yeah. And that's a real challenge. So, because you, you want to have a little bit of, of a sense of awareness of where that leader is in case the caution comes out, 
uh, you know how quick you need to react to be to be ready to pull out in front of a leader. So, but the you know the the biggest thing for me is you know just making sure that when we say uh, that the track is ready to go racing, for sure it's ready to go. When they when they go sailing off into turn one, uh, that car's going to stick and they're not going to have any trouble. Um, you know we uh, we we go to great lengths to make sure that that happens. So I'm sure that there's a bunch of stuff going on in your ears. And in front of you Both. as well. I mean, you're probably <laughs> on the radio with the tower, making sure that everything's good there. I'm sure that there's probably a switch or a, or a trigger for the lights that are on top of the pace car to turn them off when you get one to go. Um, yep. I'm sure that every now and then you might have a Kyle Busch situation where he gives you a little nudge <laughs> in the rear and yep. you might feel that. There's probably so many other things that you didn't even mention because they're probably just rudimentary to you that go on, whether, whether you're under caution, you're about to start the race or whatever that to everybody else watching, they don't know what it is because they really think, I, I did for a while, you just go out there, you mash the gas, you put it on cruise control, and then when they tell you to pull in, you pull in. But it's it's not that easy. That's part of it? it. Well, so so you you mentioned the radios. So we I do listen to two separate radios during the course of a race. I have our race director in one ear. Um, that is the primary channel that I listen to. You know, he's the one talking to our flag stand, to the, the pit road officials. He's the one that's talking to all the cleanup vehicles uh, in terms of getting the track ready to go racing again. Um, so he's in one ear. I have our series director in my other ear. And the series director's channel is what we call the go-to channel. And what that typically means is the race director's channel, any traffic, radio traffic that goes up to him needs to be short and sweet and to the point. So he has the ability to to move equipment, to put the yellow out when it needs to come out. So those conversations are nice and brief. The series director's channel, the go-to channel, that's where conversations become a little more in-depth mm -hmm. and, and you start to hear more of the details of what may be going on, whether it's with a crew on pit road or, you know, other items that we're observing around the racetrack. So trying to keep those two voices separated in my head, <laughs> um, you know, sometimes that's a challenge because yep. more often than not, they're talking – at the same time so it. you kind of learn to to listen for what is pertaining to you um but you know in in either case they they act as a spotter for me so when the yellow does come out um, they're telling me who the last car is that'll go by me before i pick up the leader right they'll tell me if a if a car you know where we park at daytona is down at the way down at the end of pit road and we call it the in and out so it's the entrance of the road course the infield road mm -hmm. course and also the exit there on uh, the short shoot between the trioval and turn one. So there are a lot of times if, if an accident happens in the trioval, you know, I'll have both of them telling me to stay put because the wreck will probably be coming right in front of my right. parking location. So, um, you know, they, they act as a spotter for me. Um, and the redundancy is nice because if one of them gets tied up doing one duty, then the other one is looking out for me. Right. So, um, Along with those two radios, I, I typically have a third radio in the car, and, and that one's either tuned in to MRN or PRN. Um, and along with that, I have several drivers that I listen to, you know, depending on who might be leading the race, uh, what track we may be at, because uh, I want to get their perspective of, of what the racing surface is like for them hmm. sitting in the seat. And, um, you know, that's something that may be a little different than what I experienced sitting in the air-conditioned pace car. So. Yeah. Um, I, I try to listen to those guys too, because, you know, they are brutally honest about if things are ready or they're not. And, you know, they act as a, an extra set of eyes, uh, for me when, when we're out there. So 
radio. That's the radio part of it. Yeah. We do have a light switch. Um, I don't know if, if many people notice this. We also have a red and a green light on the light bar on the uh, top of the car or the, or the truck. And that is, uh, it works in conjunction with our pit open and close light. So when the pits are open and our pit road open official or open and close official says that they have switched their light to green, I do the same thing at the pace car. That way the field behind me can see as we're going down the back stretch, the pits are open. Gotcha. If we have to close it, same thing. I'll flip it to red and uh, that way they'll know that the pit road is closed even before we get to it. Very fascinating stuff. Um, cruise control. Do you use it or not? Absolute necessity is cruise control. And I will tell you why. So we had a, we had a uh, vehicle at Daytona one year that um, once we got up onto the banking, the, the vehicle became very angry with us um, because it did not like sitting at 31 degrees of banking. So as we're going around the racetrack, the cruise decided to stop working. Well, our pace speed at Daytona is 70 miles an hour. And I will tell you that in a vehicle just cruising around Daytona at 70 miles an hour, it seems like you're slow. And so it is very hard to maintain that speed if you don't have cruise control. And, and we, we had to deal with this firsthand one year. Um, and you would look down at the speedometer as you're looking for debris or fluid, as you're listening to the radios, as you're trying to do all the things that you do, you would look down and you're running a hundred or you look down and you're running 60 or, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah. So having that cruise control takes one, it, it's set it and forget it. And, and you just go and, and we manipulate that speed sometimes, but you're still able to do it with the cruise control. Uh, whether we need to, to maybe speed up to help dry off a certain portion right. of the track or slow down to help the safety workers have a little more time to do their jobs. So that brings up another point. I'm sure that driving the pace car differs completely at a place like Martinsville or Bristol Dirt compared to Talladega, Daytona, Road America this weekend when the laps never seem to end. Do you have to like change? It kind of sounds weird, like I'm asking you a race car driver question, but do you have to change your driving style at all at, at those types of tracks? Or is it really just kind of similar each time and you just press cru cruise control and you're good? Because I have to imagine, again, the speeds are different, but the surfaces are different, the turns are different, the banking's different, and that could maybe wreak havoc on a passenger car. Yeah, so I think the we had this effect at, um, at Worldwide Technology uh, just a few weeks ago where where the tires, the race tires had a tremendous amount of fall off. And when that happens, it applies rubber to the track. So when we go out there with cold um, street tires, <laughs> radial tires or, or all season tires, it picks up every bit of that rubber until it has enough rubber and it starts flinging it off. Or you go to turn down pit road. And as we come on the pit road, as the cars go back to green, you know, we'll pick up the speed just a little bit to make sure that we're well out of their way as they come up through the restart zone. So um, there have been times where you turn the wheel left and the car keeps going straight. So you, you have to kind of make uh -oh. sure that you're on your toes to adjust for that. Um, there were at, at, at gateway, um, we were, um, I tried to make sure that I was at a spot where maybe I wouldn't be seen by a camera or whatever, but trying to clean those tires off that way. When we went back to green, I, I make sure that I could make that left, that hard left, and especially there because it's actually a little cut off. Um, as you come off a turn four, a little shortcut from the track uh, onto pit road. So mm -hmm. it's a little more of a turn than, than most tracks, but you know, uh, the dirt track, uh, provides its own, uh, unique experiences. Um, you know, at Bristol, we had, we battled the rain there as well. And so, uh, 
the track would get you know a little sloppy. And um, the, I told someone we were out there making laps uh, during a little bit of the rain, and I told someone I. I think uh, we know it's raining. I'm just going to go and park because the last thing I want to do is is wreck Chevrolet's eighty five thousand dollar pickup truck out here, <laughs> you know, trying just to make laps around the track when uh, when I didn't really need to be. So, yeah. um, you know, it's um, th- those are probably the biggest things um, as far as challenges that we face. You know, the the you know, Daytona and Talladega. You know, like I said, seventy seems slow. It's like riding down the interstate and get past everybody. Yeah. Um, because you, you could literally run in a passenger vehicle 100 mile an hour out there and it it feels like you're just running down the interstate yeah because um, at some point too, America, you got to go fast enough so you don't fall down the banking literally uh you can stop on the banking really yeah for sure oh. you can stop on the banking now i will tell you this um and you've seen footage of the uh the air titan that um yeah when it was drying the track at um, we were at daytona or talladega and his left rear tire got onto the painted line and it slipped, and so he slid down the banking. Um, you have to be mindful for that if the weather's bad. Or we um, we had quite a bit of oil dry applied to the track one time, and and we were under a red flag. Well, we left the field sitting back on the uh, on the backstretch to go and check what they had applied and see and to make sure that it was being blown off. And uh, we had to apply so much oil dry on the track that we started slipping down the banking, but, Oof. and that, that'll get your attention in a hurry. For sure. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, but it was nothing that, that we weren't able to just drive right away from. Um, but places like Bristol, Daytona, Talladega, where you would think that you can't stop on the banking. Yeah, you can, you just you have to be somewhat smart about it. All right, Kip, this is a safe space. It's just me and you. I promise. Have you <laughs> okay. ever wrecked a pace car? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever come close? Um, <laughs> we were um we were moving the pace cars one time from the garage area in phoenix um from the xfinity garage over to the cup garage it was a chilly morning and the xfinity race had applied a lot of rubber on the uh on the tires on these camaros that we had and so as i was uh, backing up a car and getting ready to take it around to our garage area um the rear end just came right around on me Uh-oh. and it was not not a lot of throttle tighten her up not oh and it uh it got my attention in a hurry and i was just very very thankful that you know there wasn't a building or another car parked near me as i was doing that but um it's uh you know it it'll it'll show you real quick how much power some of these cars have um but i you know i'm mindful of that you know we we give rides a lot we we have opportunities to get out there and and run 100 plus at, at a lot of these tracks when we're giving some of our guests uh, rides around the racetrack and and you are mindful of the fact that you're you're driving a, a you know seventy eighty thousand dollar vehicle and i i will joke with our folks you know quite often that you know more often than not we are at a venue that is a long walking distance from home and i don't want to have to uh to go explain to somebody why i have to walk home because i crashed a pace car yes that is very fair okay you mentioned sometimes it's a truck sometimes it's a car sometimes it's a really cool car it all depends, you know, sponsorships. I know there's a Toyota Camry a lot of the time. There's a cool Tundra a lot of the time. I'm sure you've driven some sports cars. What's the coolest or some of the coolest vehicles that you have paced the field in over the years? Yeah, so probably in the last probably in the last handful of years, um, you know, Chevrolet brought out their uh, Corvette, the Z06. Oh, yeah. And that was the first time I'd ever had the opportunity to drive a mid-engine car. And so Chevrolet was 
um, very adamant about the fact that we needed to have a, not a class, but they wanted to be able to sit down with me and go over some of the features of this car. Um, Don't break they it. take their pay. They, yeah, for, for sure. <laughs> right. They, they take their pace car driving program very seriously. Sure. And so we were at Daytona and, um, we, uh, we, we made some laps in the car and it feels like you're sitting in a jet fighter, you know, you're a the engine. So the noise is behind you. Um, the hood is short and very, um, uh, has a very steep rake to it. So when you look out the windshield, you're looking at the road, but when you're, when you're cruising along at a hundred mile an hour at Daytona in the Corvette, all you hear is a whistle. And so that car, just because of the uniqueness of it, I, I would have to rank right up there at the very top, but you know, who would have ever dreamed that the Toyota Camry TRD, a family car mm -hmm. would be our pace car. Yeah. And that car is so much fun to drive, especially at our road courses, because it is, uh, it handles so well around the corners. It looks like it. Um, it absolutely does. The, um, you know, Chevrolet now with, we have a ZL1 in the, uh, the cup series that we drive. That's a Corvette with a Camaro body on it. It is a, it is a very, um, nimble, very fast pace car. Um, and then Ford here in the last few weeks or last couple of years, actually with the, the mock E and now the, the Ford lightning that we had uh, this past weekend, um, there is nothing like the feel of instant torque <laughs> in an electric vehicle. So, yeah. um, they are all, they all had their, their, their fun features about them. Um, it, so it's always just a matter of, of looking forward to the very next one. And, you know, this week coming up at road America, we'll be back in our, uh, uh, Chevrolet Camaro ZL ones. And uh, there's nothing like tooling around that four mile road course in that Camaro. Make sure to keep it on the pavement, though. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so you've driven a lot of cool cars, as you mentioned. You've you've taken a lot of really big time celebrities on some pace car rides, some joy rides. I'm sure that they would call it. What are some of the the cooler people that you've gotten to interact with and take for a spin at triple digits? Well, one of the one of the coolest rides that I and I was the passenger here. We had Mario Andretti as our honorary pace car driver oh, at Charlotte one year, and and it was so funny. You know, the every everyone kept asking me, you know, are you, you going to tell Mario? You know, because we would always go through a driving yeah. training session with you can't our tell honorary him what drivers. To do. I'm like Mario Andretti. <laughs> so we get in the car, and he said, and he asked me, he said, all right, what do I need to do? I said, we were and we we're at the Roval. I said, the only thing you need to worry about is 40 miles an hour for as long as when we hit a, a long stretch of straightaway, we'll hit 40 and we'll turn the lights on to let the field know that we're at pit road speed. And that's the speed I need you to run. Okay. Outside of that, I'm not telling Mario Andretti how to drive. You know, it was so fun because, and he had a blast. He was, he was swerving back and forth. He was looking in the mirror, playing with whoever was on the front row. You got to clean off his he tires was, so they don't rubber up, Kip. You can learn a thing. Well, and I would. I'll tell you this, as we were coming to the green, he looked over at me. He said, I think I'm going to run one more lap. And I didn't know how to respond to that. I didn't know if he was being serious. <laughs> what are you going to do? Say I no. Was gonna have to, well, I would have to call the tower and, and tell them. You, know? you pull Richard Petty. Um, oh, man. Oh, yeah. So how, how do you black flag the king? You don't. And so I, was, I was not a cup official at that point in time. <laughs> I could not imagine having the black flag the king. Man, good times. Uh, real quick, you mentioned holler parking, or, or we did earlier in the chat. Um, 18 wheelers are tough in and of themselves. You put race cars in them and all this really valuable, expensive equipment that is the lifeblood of the sport that makes those haulers way, way more valuable and more prone to having accidents. I would assume, um, having them park and you kind of orchestrating the parking of those vehicles 
How do you begin to even go about that logistically? Because I feel like we tune in on TV or we get to the track, we look in the garage, it's pristine, everything's so lined up perfectly, and you are the man behind the scenes who helps make all of that happen. How do you go about that? Well, I would say that I'm the man that puts it on paper. Um, You know, we've got a couple of officials um, that guide these guys, and they've taught me a bunch about guiding these trucks um, into their parking spots. Um, you know, kudos to the tracks because a lot of tracks we used to go to would not have painted lines for us to park. Um, so we've asked the tracks to go in and, and say, all right, I need uh, a stall every 12 and a half, 13 feet. And so we are having more and more tracks that are installing these lines for us. Road America will be the, this will be the first time we've been to Road America and we'll have painted lines on the ground to help us guide these guys Love in it. there. So so the, the tracks have really gone above and beyond to make sure that we can do our jobs. And then, like I said, we've got you know, a couple of guys, uh, Barry Kern and Kurt Price are the two guys who, who routinely park our, our haulers. Uh, Barney Bailey, who is one of our truck drivers that drive our equipment, um, he'll help out with that. Um, when Barry or, or Kurt can't be with us, I'll jump in there and help out. And, and then what really adds, um, I guess, puts the cherry on top is, the guys who drive these trucks, um, they, they do a phenomenal job. They, they, I tell them week in, week out, there's going to come a time where we'll have a flight problem or I'm not going to be able to make it to the track or whatever the case may be. And I fully expect that I would pull in there and these trucks will be parked exactly how I wanted them. Exactly. Um, you talk about them being, you know, lined up perfectly spaced evenly. They do that. They they make sure that they they that they look exactly how they ought to, and it's not just the drivers in the Cup Series. It's Xfinity. Mm-hmm. It's the Truck Series. It's you know all the all the touring series. They the truck drivers take a lot of pride in what they do, and they absolutely should. Unsung heroes. And that's exactly right. You know they you know and it's truck drivers all across the country. We don't have the things that we have. I don't have this microphone if if a truck didn't deliver it to you know the facility to to the distribution center yeah. to bring it to my house. Right. So in, at any rate, these guys are, they are the unsung heroes and, and the ones holding the steering wheel deserve all the credit for making this all look good. Got a couple more for you and I'll let you run. Um, outside of racing, you do some public address announcing for some local high school athletics. That's why I got that spiffy diffy microphone there with you. I literally <laughs> logged good. on and I go, Oh my <laughs> goodness, this man is one upping me. Um, I know you started doing that a long, long time ago, and, and you've continued to do that for multiple different sports on that level. What gives you so much enjoyment out of doing that during the week when you're not at the racetrack? Well, it started out as a, a love for gadgets, um, and I'm, I'm a gadget freak. Uh, I, electronic gadgets, um, and I, fortunately, thankfully, I'm not as much of a, of a gadget nut as I used to be. But when I was in high school, <clears throat> there was a, a public address announcer that we had. He announced everything. Uh, I played football. I wrestled. I played baseball. And it seemed like every time we were on the field or on the mat, he was there. <laughs> and so, and he he was iconic. He was a he was a legend of our of our community. Um, the press box that I announced so many football games from is named after him. So you know, Ray Joyner. Um, helped me get my start in announcing as his health began to decline. And so, you know, I had the opportunity to start announcing football and, and other sports at North Davidson high school, um, just down the road from where I live. It's the school that I graduated from back in 1989. 
and you know to be able to announce for so many years uh, at that high school was was such an honor. Um, I was able to announce my 100th um, home football game. Wow! Um, you know, several years ago, awesome. and you know when you when you stop and think about it, when I would tell folks about that, you know, 100, you know, that's that's not that big a deal, but when you have five or six home football games a season, you know, it takes a long time to get to a hundred. Yeah. So, um, the, um, the coach, uh, they, we, we'd all kind of kept tabs on, on when we're, when I was going to hit that number. And so, you know, the team and the coach, they autographed a the football and presented it to me on very the field. Cool. Um, it was, you know, it was very, very humbling. Um, that is, uh, I, I tell folks all the time that I will forever bleed black and orange because of the North Davidson black Knights. Now, that. fast forward to um, just a, a handful of years ago, um, our the area that we live in has exploded. Um, we have uh, North Davidson became overcrowded, has, has long been overcrowded as a high school. Um, one of our neighboring high schools, Ledford High School, they were also overcrowded. So a new high school was built right between the two, and Oak Grove High School ended up being um, the high school that my youngest daughter it will be a senior at this coming year. So as that school got, got off the ground, um, I was able to, uh, to go in there and, and be one of the first voices for our Grizzlies. That's awesome. So, um, I still say, I believe black and orange, it's now got a tinge of blue in there. Um, <laughs> but you know, during the winter, I have a, an opportunity to, uh, announce, um, basketball games, wrestling matches, um, you know, during the fall, of course, we're traveling most, uh, most weekends, um, but I can still on a Tuesday or Thursday go and announce volleyball. And then during the spring and into the summer, you know, baseball games that are early week or midweek, I'm able to, you know, to, to pick up my microphone and, and, and call a baseball game. And, and here in just the last year, as a matter of fact, um, our local community college, Davidson Davy Community College, um, they have a, uh, a nationally ranked uh, JUCO team that a basketball team that um they they came and asked me if i could help them out and be their pa You're guy getting recruited oh it was uh it was extremely humbling their head coach matt ridge i've known matt for i got to see matt play high school ball um when i was announcing at north davidson wow. so matt uh, went on to uh, to carolina he he because of an injury never did really get to to play basketball much at the collegiate level um, but when he graduated college, came back and became a high school coach, a very successful one. And then when our community college started their program, they tabbed him to be their first coach. Um, and he has a perennial, perennial powerhouse uh, at Davidson Davy year in, year out. Uh, this past season, we were uh, we finished second in the nation for the second year in a row. So it, cool. it was an honor to be asked and to be a part of that program and, and looking forward to uh, a whole lot of more W's coming out of that gym. Have you gotten to call any of your daughter's games if she plays any sports? So my, uh, my oldest daughter um, started off being a softball player when she was very young and, and, and found out quickly that she was more of a fan than she was really a competitor. And so she, she, um, she became that, that fan right in the front row of the student section. Or you know, now she, she tells me that, that she's my biggest fan. And, and that oh. is the coolest feeling to know that, that one of your kids is your fan. So That's when awesome. you do, you know, you post something on – on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or, or even TikTok that I've, I've dabbed into a little bit. Um, you, you know, you've got at least one fan out there that that's your biggest fan. Yeah. My youngest daughter, um, unfortunately because of some knee injuries, um, is not, has not been able to play any sports uh, since she was in the eighth grade. Mm -hmm. Um, but she does uh, help out our football team. She's a student trainer 
has been very, you know, active in that program. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, she was at football practice today, this morning, you know, with the team as they get ready to start their season. So, you know, one thing that will be uh, an absolute honor is um, I believe we are racing at Martinsville on senior night weekend. So with Martinsville being just an hour up the road, I'll be able to be a part of senior night awesome. when, when she gets out on the field to, to have her name called out. So that's uh, looking forward to that and, and being a part of, of everything that's to come with her with her senior year here at high school. Did you slip Ben Kennedy a 20 and just ask them to make that race that weekend a little bit of home cooking? Um, and no. I, <laughs> you have no I'm idea what I'm talking about, about, do you? Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah. No. <laughs> I love it. All right, a couple more really quick ones. The travel of, of your job specifically in this industry is unparalleled. Longest season in professional sports, and you go all the way. You're at all 36 races. You're traveling pretty much every single weekend and you got a wife, you got two kids, obviously how taxing physically. And then also just mentally is the grind that is working in the cup series every single week. Well, none of us could do what we do if we didn't have the, the full support that we do from home. Um, it's, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that I married my wife in 96 and I went working for the truck series in 96 uh, she knew right away, you know, what she was getting involved in. Um, she knew that, you know, my history with my family involved in racing, uh, she would follow me to Caraway Speedway, you know, up, you know, up until I did go to work with the truck series and, and, you know, she gets to, to go to a race or two with me, um, you know, year in and year out, we will try to pick a different track for her to visit. And, and we've, we've got friends that live in some of the cities that we visit as well. So, um, but you know, there, there is a lot of sacrifice that goes on with uh with any family that's involved mm -hmm. with uh with racing um you know there there have been uh there have been birthdays that have been missed there have been anniversaries that have been missed and so we we try not to miss those as much as we do we just reschedule them we'll put them <laughs> somewhere else on the calendar to make sure that we still celebrate them and and you know with with the way that our calendar is you know that 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 makes it tough but you know so we um I'm very fortunate in the fact that, you know, my wife, Jenny and my, my daughters, Sarah and Brianna, they are, they're very supportive with what I do and not only with, with racing, but they know that if I'm home, I'm typically at a ball game with a microphone in front of me. Yeah. So, um, they, you know, they are, uh, they are, there's no way to describe the feeling that I have knowing that I have them in my corner because, um, going to a race tonight when we're off or when we're not at a race, you know, they, they, they support that. And, and I just, I cannot thank them enough, um, you know, for, for all that they do for me to allow me to do the things that I love to do. Number one, Kip Childress fan base is in the Childress household. That is That's for sure. All right. I like to end my conversations with everybody. You know, you have done so much in honestly, so little time. When you think about all the different levels that you've been at the level that you've progressed to and the speed at which you've done that, is there anything else whether it's inside of motorsports or outside of motorsports professionally that you would like to accomplish? Is there anything else that you see yourself doing maybe five, 10 years down the road and saying, you know what? I really think I could, I could find myself doing this and I'd like to do something else. That's tough. Um, and simply because that, that uh, going back to what I said, that if this is the last thing I do, I'm, I'm proud and happy about what I'm doing. <clears throat> But if I do have opportunities to to move up, to have to have opportunities to expand what I do, I, I would love that too. So, to to say that I 
that I would love the opportunity to be the managing director of the cup series. Absolutely. To say that I would, would love the opportunity, you know, Jim Hunter was a, a hero of mine growing up. You know, when my dad worked, Hunter was already working for the company um, before he had his stint at Darlington raceway. And then, and they came back to the company. So I had the chance to be around Hunter um, from the time I was a kid, you know, on up until I came back to work for the company. So um, I always looked at Jim as being a voice of reason in our garage. You know, he did so many other things too, from a, from a PR standpoint, from a, um, you know, from our IMC group that, that does so much to help promote our sport. Jim was a, a huge uh, factor in that as well, but he was that calming voice in the garage when a driver might be upset with something that we have done, or an owner might be upset with something we have done. Jim was the one that would go and pull someone off to the side and, and sit them down and talk to them and get things back to where it was on even keel. And I always admired that. Now you can't plan to be that guy. You, sure. you just, you just happen to be that guy, but I always wondered you know, if, you know, cause I, I tend to think, okay, so folks who know my dad, um, there was an interview with Phil Parsons not too long ago that where Phil talked about my dad being very stern and very, you know, very matter of fact and to the point. And, and that was probably putting it very nicely. <laughs> um, I have been given an opportunity to, or I, I've been told a time or two that I'm very much like my dad and the fact that I am, I, I'm by the letter when it comes to what we do in terms of rules, but I'm able to handle that um, with uh, a little more level of calmness, if you will. And so I, I kind of hope that maybe, you know, as I'm, I progress, you know, through our company, I can, I can become that voice of reason. Maybe I think that would be, that would be something extremely cool, you know, to, to, as I, you know, still a lot of years ahead of me within our sport, yeah. but as I'm getting to the point where, you know, someone needs, um, maybe some advice or someone needs, you know, someone to, Hey, talk me off the ledge here, or someone needs to, to be calmed down. You know, I'd like to think that, that maybe that's something that I could do, you know, in the future. I, I don't know, you know, yeah. it's tough. It is, but take my word for it. And I know it doesn't mean much, but you're already a voice of reason to many in the garage. I think that you have the respect of so many people across all national series, regional, local touring. You really do. And, you know, people seeing you driving the pace car on Sundays, that's just kind of a culmination for a few minutes at a time um, as to what you really do every single day, whether you're at the track, away from the track. I think you have a really, really big influence and a lot of people look to you for that guidance and, and that advice. So I really appreciate you spending some time with me today for telling your story. I think the fans will, will really get a kick out of it. I know you did a similar podcast with my colleague Kelly Crandall about a year or so ago, but I've been wanting right. to get you on ever since then because you have an awesome, awesome story. You have a great mindset. You're a really awesome person, and I'm glad that you were able to spend some time with me and, and tell your story. And who knows? I mean, maybe if Kyle Busch hits you again, you'll make an appearance on my TikTok. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's the one thing I've been trying to keep from doing is to <laughs> when I do watch those TikToks to make sure that I'm not one of those uh, finding the wall somewhere. Yeah. So, um, so far so good. We'll, we'll hope to keep that up. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Hope to keep it up. Well, I hope to see you soon, my friend. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for the perspective and it's great getting to catch up with you and have fun at road America this week. Happy 4th of July and stay cool. Thank you, Davey. And, uh, it's, it's a privilege of mine to be here. Anytime that you want to sit down to you the fat a little bit, just let me know. 
And we are back. Woo, what a guy. So much to unpack there with Kip. I, I feel like I could talk to him all day. He is such an interesting guy, and we only got into a little bit of his time as a PA announcer at some local high schools, but that stuff really, really fascinates me. He's a family man, and he just does so well at what he does when it comes to driving the pace car, being the assistant director for the Cup Series, and he's just a grade A human as well. I, I've gotten to know him a little bit over the last couple of years, seeing him in the garage. So, Kip, keep up the good work. Hopefully, I won't put you in my TikToks. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, but seriously, thank you so much for the time and a big thank you to Amanda Ellis of NASCAR Communications for helping coordinate that conversation as well. Uh, Kelly Crandall on the Racing Writers Podcast had Kip on her show probably over a year ago at this point. I mentioned it late in that chat with Kip, but I encourage you guys to go back and listen to that as well after you're done here because a lot of the things were a bit regurgitated in terms of topics, but some things have obviously changed over the last year, 18 months or so. So Kelly had a great chat with Kip, as did I. So obviously encourage you to go check that out as well. All right, we got to chat a little bit about Nashville Super Speedway where Kip Childress just got back from. It was a good race. I think it was a really good race. The, the timing of when Mother Nature decided to intervene was not so good. And the timing of the race starting was not so great either. I, I totally get it from NBC's perspective. It's totally understandable. You want to start the race so it will end in prime time. I get it. The ratings reflect that. If you start at 1 p.m. Eastern, that would be 12 Central. We kind of understand how the sausage is made from the television perspective as it relates to race times and race starts. So we're not going to get too much into that. But it still just begs the question, can something be done here? Because you have all this momentum. There's an off weekend. There's a big appetite for racing. Second year in a row that NASCAR, the Cup Series, is racing in the Music City, a town that is very, very well fit for NASCAR racing. NBC's taken over, a fresh broadcast to look forward to. And then you have rain interfering with it. Multiple lightning delays, had about a two-hour delay right before the halfway point. And then we went back racing a little bit after 10 p.m., I think, ended a little bit before midnight. That was a long, long day at Nashville Super Speedway. So I wish that there could be an easy fix, and there's not. If there was, then it would be fixed by now. But overall, the race was was pretty good. I think that, you know, this is not a short track. It's not a mile and a half. It's somewhere in the middle. But it raced more like a mile and a half, in my opinion, at least from what we saw with the next-gen cars, how they were dancing around, racing side-by-side, side, three, four wide at times. That was pretty solid. And I know that Toyota's probably kicking themselves over that late-race pit call blunder, having a bunch of their cars pit late in the going, basically handing the win to Chase Elliott since he stayed out, who definitely earned it. His situation was made much easier by the fact that the other main contenders basically took themselves out of contention and they came to pit road. But another great weekend of racing at Nashville Super Speedway. Ryan Priest wins 50 grand in the truck race. Justin Allgaier dominates once again for junior motorsports in the Xfinity race. And Awesome Chase from the same place as Awesome Bill from Dawsonville wins the Ally 400 at Nashville Super Speedway. And we keep on rolling with the NASCAR Cup Series and the Xfinity Series, who are both headed up north to Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, and Road America, one of the longest, most premier road courses, I think, in North America, and does deserve a place on the schedule. I think that it would be a travesty if Chicago came on next year and replaced 
Road America, which sounds like that may be the case and that may be what happens. I hope not. I'm holding out hope. That's neither here nor there. It's a topic of conversation for a different podcast, but I'm looking forward to Road America. I, I, I liked the event there last year. The racing was good. I think the event was even better. And moving the, the Daytona date off of the 4th of July it ruffled a lot of the feathers with some fans. But now, this has been, at least for a year, and I know that it's kind of an oxymoron to say after one year it's tradition, but it feels like this could really be a good, fun tradition that NASCAR could really implement. Road America on July 4th weekend, celebrating the U.S. It seems like almost too good to be true, which is part of the reason why it may be going away next year. But I'm looking forward to the action, man. I hope everybody enjoys it as well. And if it is the last time, at least for the foreseeable future, that NASCAR races at Road America, I'm just going to soak it in because I love the vibe. Over 100,000, maybe upwards of 200,000 people were there last year. I can't wait to see them pack the grandstands and the campgrounds this weekend. So catch all the action this weekend. Sunday, the Quick Trip 250 on USA Network. That'll wrap things up for episode 154 of Victory Lane 2.0. Really hope you guys like what you heard here today with Kip Childress. And if you did, please do me a favor. Leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to the podcast. We're available on all major platforms, wherever you get your shows. Apple, Google, SoundCloud. You know the drill by now. Wherever you get them, we should be there for you. And leave a rating and a review because it helps me out spread the word, spread the gospel of the show to those that may not already be too familiar with it. I know what you're thinking also. Wait, you teased somebody else for this week's episode by saying good afternoon, everyone, last week. Well, I called a last second audible and I wanted to get Kip on this week because Road America, there's probably going to be a lot of pace laps and you're probably going to see a lot of Kip Childress. So that's why I called a little last second audible to put Kip Childress on this week. But next week, I'm telling you right now, we will have part one of a two-part chat with somebody who I work with, who you have most certainly heard and maybe even seen. And I will say once again, for the not first, not second, but third time, good afternoon, everyone. Get ready for that because it was a time to be had. Thank you again so much to Kip Childress for joining me this week. Thank you to you for tuning in this week. And I will catch you on the flip side next week as we recap Road America and chat with another figure from the NASCAR world. Be good, party people. Enjoy your fourth.